Section 18 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Recorded for LibriVox.org by Sandra Chapter 5, Part 5 to 9 5 She missed Mrs. Worthington. She saw the old woman drive smoothly away from prices in her car, alone in the back seat. The negro driver's head was round as a cannonball, and Mrs. Burney watched it draw away, smelling gasoline. The shadow of the courthouse was like thinned tobacco smoke filling one side of the square, and standing in the door of a store she saw an acquaintance, a friend of her son's. He had been in Dewey's company, an officer or something, but he hadn't got killed, not him. Trust them, generals and things. No, no, I won't feel like this. He done the best he could. It ain't his fault if he wasn't brave enough to get killed like Dewey was. They're all jealous of Dewey anyway. Won't talk about him except that he done what was right. Done what was right. Didn't I know he would? Dewey. Dewey. So young he was, so big and brave, until that green man took him off and got him killed. She felt sorry for the man, felt kindly toward him, pitying him. She stopped beside him. Yes, ma'am, he was all right. Yes, the other boys were all right. But then you wasn't killed, she explained. All soldiers wasn't like Dewey. So brave, foolhardy almost. I always told him not to let that green get him. Get him? Yes, yes, he agreed, looking at her meticulous bent neatness. Was he all right? He didn't want for nothing? No, no, he was all right, he assured her. Sunset was almost come. Sparrows in a final delirium in the dusty elms, the last wagons going slowly countryward. Men don't know, she said bitterly. You probably never done for him what you could. That Mr. Green, I always misdoubted him. He's dead too, you know, he reminded her. I won't be unjust to him. You was a officer or something. Seems like you'd have took better care of a boy you knowed. We did all we could for him, he told her patiently. The square, empty of wagons, was quiet. Women went slowly in the last of the sun, meeting husbands, going home to supper. She felt her rheumatism more, now that the air was getting cooler, and she became restive in her fretful black. Well, you seen his grave, you say. You're sure he was all right? So big and strong he was. So good to her. Yes, yes, he was all right. Madden watched her bent neat rotundity going down the street among shadows, beneath metallic awnings. The shadow of the courthouse had taken half the town like a silent victorious army, not firing a shot. The sparrows completed a final dusty delirium and went away, went away across evening, into morning, retracing months, a year. Someone on a fire-step had shouted, Gas! And the officer leaped among them, striking, imploring, then he saw the officer's face in red and bitter relief as the man on the fire-step, sharp against the sorrowful dawn, turned, screaming, "'You have got us killed!' and shot him in the face at point-blank range. 6. San Francisco, California, April fourteenth, 1919 Dear Margaret, I got your letter, and I intended to answering it sooner, but I've been busy running around. Yes, she was not a bad kid. She's shown me a good time. No, she is not so good-looking, but she takes a good photo. She wants to go in the movies. 
and a director told her she photographs better than any girl he has seen. She has a car, and she is a swell dancer, but of course I'd just like to play around with her. She's too young for me to really care for. No, I have not gone to work yet. This girl goes to the U, and she is talking about me going there next year, so I may go there next year. Well, there's no news. I have done a little flying, but mostly dancing and running around. I have got to go out on a party now, or I'd write more. Next time, more next time. Give my regards to everybody I know. Your sincere friend, Julian Lowe. 7. Mahone liked music, so Mrs. Worthington sent her car for them. Mrs. Worthington lived in a large, beautiful old house, which her husband, conveniently dead, had bequeathed, with a colourless male cousin who had false teeth and no occupation that anyone knew of to her. The male cousin's articulation was bad. He'd been struck in the mouth with an axe in a dice game in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. Perhaps this was why he did nothing. Mrs. Worthington ate too much and suffered from gout and a flouted will, so her church connection was rather trying to the minister and his flock. But she had money, that panacea for all ills of the flesh and spirit. She believed in rights for women as long as women would let her dictate what was right for them. One usually ignored the male relation, but sometimes one pitied him. But she sent her car for them, and with Mrs. Powers and Mahone in the rear, and Gilligan beside the negro driver, they rolled smoothly beneath elms, seeing stars in a clear sky, smelling growing things, hearing a rhythmic thumping soon to become music. 8. This, the spring of 1919, was the day of the boy, of him who had been too young for soldiering. For two years he had had a dry time of it. Of course girls had used him during the scarcity of men, but always in such a detached, impersonal manner, like committing fornication with a beautiful woman who chews gum steadily all the while. Oh, uniform! Oh, vanity! They had used him, but when a uniform showed up he got the air. Up to that time uniforms could all walk. They were not only fashionable and romantic, but they were also quite keen on spending what money they had, and they were also going too far away and too immediately to tell on you. Of course it was silly that some uniforms had to salute others, but it was nice, too, especially if the uniform you'd caught happened to be a salutee. And heaven only knows how much damage among feminine hearts a set of pilot's wings was capable of. And the shows... Beautiful, pure girls, American, in afternoon or evening gowns, doubtless under brigade orders, caught in deserted fire trenches by Prussian hussars, on passes signed by Belasco, in parade uniform, courtesans in Paris frocks, demoralizing brigade staffs, having subalterns with arrow-collar profiles and creased breech, whom the generals all think may be German spies, and handsome old generals, whom the subalterns all think may be German spies, glaring at each other across her languid body, while corporal comedians entertain the beautiful-limbed and otherwise idle Red Cross nurses. American. The French women present are either marquises or whores or German spies, sometimes both, sometimes all three, the Marquises may be told immediately because they all wear sabots, having given their shoes with the rest of their clothing to the French army, retaining only a pair of forty-carat diamond earrings. Their sons are all aviators who have been out on a patrol since the previous Tuesday, causing the Marquises to be a trifle distraught. The regular whores patronize them, while the German spies make love to the generals. 
A courtesan, doubtless also under brigade orders, later saves the sector by sex appeal after gunpowder had failed, and the whole thing is wound up with a sort of garden party near a papier-mâché dugout in which the army sits in sixty-pound packs, all three smoking cigarettes while the Prussian guard gnashes its teeth at them from an adjacent cardboard trench. A chaplain appears who, to indicate that the soldiers love him because he's one of them, achieves innuendos about home and mother and fornication. A large new flag is flown and the enemy fires at it vainly with twenty-two rifles. The men on our side cheer, led by the padre. What? said a beautiful painted girl, not listening to James Doe, who'd been for two years a corporal pilot in a French chasse escadrille, is the difference between an American ace and a French or British aviator? About six reels, answered James Doe glumly, such a dull man. Where did Mrs. Wardle get him, who had shot down thirteen enemy craft and had himself been crashed twice, giving him eleven points without allowing for evaporation? How nice! Is that so, really? You had movies in France, too, then? Yes, gave us something to do in our spare time. Yes, she agreed, offering him her oblivious profile. You must have had an awfully good time while we poor women were slaving here, rolling bandages and knitting things. I hope women can fight in the next war. I had much rather march and shoot guns than knit. Do you think they will let women fight in the next war? She asked, watching a young man dancing limber as a worm. I expect they'll have to. James Doe shifted his artificial leg, nursing his festering arm between the bones of which a tracer bullet had passed. If they want to have another one. Yes. She yearned toward the agile, prancing youth. His body was young in years. His hair was glued smoothly to his skull. His face under a layer of powder was shaved and pallid, sophisticated, and he and his blonde and briefly skirted partner slid and poised and drifted like a dream. The negro cornetist stayed, his sweating crew, and the assault arrested withdrew, leaving the walls of silence peopled by the unconquered defenders of talk. Boys of both sexes swayed arm in arm, taking sliding, tripping steps, waiting for the music, and the agile youth, lounging immaculately, said, Have this dance? She said, Hello, sweetly drawling. Have you met Mr. Doe? Mr. Rivers, Mr. Doe? Mr. Doe is a visitor in town. Mr. Rivers patronized Mr. Doe easily and repeated, Dance the next? Mr. Rivers had had a year at Princeton. I'm sorry, Mr. Doe doesn't dance, answered Miss Cecily Saunders faultlessly. Mr. Rivers, well-bred, with all the benefits of a year at a cultural centre, mooned his blank face at her. Ah, oh, come on, you aren't going to sit out all evening, are you? What did you come here for? No, no, later, perhaps, I want to talk to Mr. Doe. You hadn't thought of that, had you? He stared at her quietly and emptily. At last he mumbled, Sorry, and lounged away. Really, began Mr. Doe, not on my account, you know, if you want to dance. Oh, I have to see those, those infants all the time. Really, it is quite a relief to meet someone who knows more than dancing and, and dancing. But tell me about yourself. Do you like Charlestown? I can see that you're accustomed to larger cities, but don't you find something charming about these small towns? Mr. Rivers roved his eye, seeing two girls watching him in poised invitation, but he moved on toward a group of men standing and sitting near the steps, 
managing in some way to create the illusion of being both participants and spectators at the same time. They were all of a kind. There was a kinship like an odour among them, a belligerent self-effacement. Wallflowers. Wallflowers. Good to talk to the hostess and dance with the duds. But even the talkative hostess had given them up now. One or two of them, bolder than the rest, but disseminating that same faint identical odour, stood beside girls, waiting for the music to start again. But the majority of them herded near the steps, touching each other as if for mutual protection. Mr. Rivers heard phrases in bad French, and he joined them, aware of his own fitted dinner jacket revealing his matchless linen. "'May I see you a minute, Madden?' The man, quietly smoking, detached himself from the group. He was not big, yet there was something big and calm about him, a sense of competent inertia after activity. "'Yes,' he said. "'Do me a favour, will you?' "'Yes,' the man repeated, courteously noncommittal. "'There's a man here who can't dance, that nephew of Mrs. Wardle's that was hurt in the war. Cecily, I mean Miss Saunders, has been with him all evening. She wants to dance.' The other watched him with calm intentness, and Mr. Rivers suddenly lost his superior air. "'To tell the truth, I want to dance with her. Would you mind sitting with him a while? I'd be awfully obliged to you if you would.' "'Does Miss Saunders want to dance?' "'Sure she does. She said so.' The other's gaze was so penetrating that he felt moisture and drew his handkerchief, wiping his powdered brow lightly, not to disarrange his hair." "'God damn it!' he burst out. "'You soldiers think you own things, don't you?' Columns. Imitation Doric. Supported a remote small balcony, high and obscure. Couples strolled in, awaiting the music. Talk and laughter and movement, distorted by a lax transparency of curtains inside the house. Along the balustrade of the veranda, red eyes of cigarettes glowed. A girl, stooping ostrich-like, drew up her stocking, and light from a window found her young, shapeless leg. The negro cornetist, having learned in his thirty years a century of the white man's lust, blinked his dispassionate eye, leading his crew in a fresh assault. Couples erupted in, clasped, and danced. Vague blurs locked together on the lawn beyond the light. Uncle Joe, Sister Kate, all shimmy like jelly on a plate— Mr. Rivers felt like a chip in a current. He knew a sharp, puerile anger. Then, as they turned the angle of the porch, he saw Cecily clothed delicately in a silver frock, fragile as spun glass. She carried a green feather fan, and her slim, animated-turned body, her nervous prettiness, filled him with speculation. The light, falling diffidently on her, felt her arm, her short body, suavely indicated her long, virginal legs. Uncle Bud, ninety-two, shook his cane and shimmied, too. Dr. Gary danced by without his glass of water. They avoided him, and Cecily looked up, breaking her speech. "'Oh, Mr. Madden, how do you do?' She gave him her hand and presented him to Mr. Doe. "'I'm awfully flattered that you decided to speak to me, or did Lee have to drag you over?' Ah. That's how it was. You were going to ignore me. I know you were. Of course, we can't hope to compete with French women. Madden protested conventionally, and she made room for him beside her. Sit down. Mr. Doe is a soldier, too, you know. Mr. Rivers said heavily, Mr. Doe will excuse you. How about a dance? 
Time to go home soon. She civilly ignored him, and James Doe shifted his leg. Really, Miss Saunders, please dance. I wouldn't spoil your evening for anything. Do you hear that, Mr. Madden? The man is driving me away. Would you do that? She tilted her eyes at him effectively. Then she turned to Doe with restrained, graceful impulsiveness. I can still call him Mr. Madden, though we have known each other all our lives. But then he was in the war, and I wasn't. He's so, so experienced, you see, and I'm only a girl. If I'd been a boy like Lee, I'd have gone and been a lieutenant in shiny boots, or a general or something by now, wouldn't I? Her turning body was graceful, impulsive, a fragile spontaneity. I cannot call you Mr. any more. Do you mind? Let's dance. Mr. Rivers, tapping his foot to the music, watched this with sophisticated boredom. He yawned openly. Let's dance. Rufus, madam, said Madden. Rufus, and you mustn't say ma'am to me any longer. You won't, will you? No, ma'am, I mean, no. Oh, you nearly forgot, then. Let's dance, repeated Mr. Rivers. But you won't forget any more. You won't, will you? No, no. Don't let him forget, Mr. Doe. I'm depending on you. Good, good. But you go dance with Mr. Smith here. She rose. He's sending me away, she stated with mock humility. Then she shrugged narrowly, nervously. I know we aren't as attractive as French women, but you must make the best of us. Poor Lee here doesn't know any French women, so we can please him. But you soldiers don't like us any more, I'm afraid. Not at all. We give you up to Mr. Lee only on condition that you come back to us. Now that's better. But you're saying that just to be polite, she accused. No, no, if you don't dance with Mr. Lee here, you'll be impolite. He's asked you several times. She shrugged again nervously. So I guess I must dance, Lee, unless you've changed your mind too and don't want me. He took her hand. Hell, come on. Restraining him, she turned to the other two, who had risen also. You'll wait for me? They assured her, and she released them. Doe's creaking artificial knee was drowned by the music, and she gave herself to Mr. Rivers' embrace. They took the syncopation. He felt her shallow breast and her knees briefly and said, What you doing to him? Slipping his arm further around her, feeling the swell of her hip under his hand. Doing to him? Ah, let's dance. Locked together, they poised and slid and poised, feeling the beat of the music, toying with it, eluding it, seeking it again, drifting like a broken dream. 9. George Farr, from the outer darkness, glowered at her, watching her slim body cut by a masculine arm, watching her head beside another head, seeing her limbs beneath her silver dress, anticipating her partner's limbs, seeing the luminous plane of her arm across his black shoulders and her fan drooping from her arched wrist like a willow at evening. He heard the rhythmic, troubling obscenities of saxophones. He saw vague shapes in the darkness, and he smelled the earth and things growing in it. A couple passed them, and a girl said, "'Hello, George. Coming in?' "'No,' he told her, wallowing in all the passionate despair of spring and youth and jealousy, getting of them an exquisite bliss. His friend beside him, a soda clerk, spat his cigarette. "'Let's have another drink.' The bottle was a combination of alcohol and sweet syrup purloined from the drugstore. It was temporarily hot to the throat, but this passed away, leaving in its place a sweet inner fire— a courage. To hell with them, he said. You ain't going in, are you? his friend asked. They had another drink. The music beat on among youthful leaves into the darkness beneath the gold and mute cacophony of stars. 
The light from the veranda mounting was lost. The house loomed huge against the sky, a rock against which waves of trees broke, and breaking were forever arrested, and stars were golden unicorns neighing unheard through the blue meadows, spurning them with hoofs sharp and scintillant as ice. The sky so remote, so sad, spurned by the unicorns of gold, that, neighing soundlessly from dusk to dawn, had seen them, had seen her, her taut body prone and naked as a narrow pool sweetly dividing, two silver streams from a single source. I'm not going in, he answered, moving away. They crossed the lawn, and in the shadow of a crepe myrtle, one with the sound of breath became two. They walked quickly on, averting their eyes. Hell, no, he repeated. I'm not going in. End of section 18. This recording is in the public domain.